Welcome to Category Visionaries, the show dedicated to exploring exciting visions for the future from the founders who are on the front lines building it. In each episode, we'll speak with a visionary founder who's building a new category or reimagining an existing one. We'll learn about the problem they solve, how their technology works, and unpack their vision for the future. I'm your host, Brett Stapper, CEO of Frontlines Media. Now let's dive right into today's episode. Hey, everyone, and thanks for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Sophie Navadi, CEO and founder of Formation, a virtual fellowship program for software engineers that's raised $9 million in funding. Sophie, thanks for chatting with me today. Brett, thanks for having me. Super excited to, to be chatting. Yeah, no problem at all. So can we just kick off with a quick summary of who you are and a bit more about your background? Yeah, sure. So as you said already, we're Formation. We're an adaptive learning platform for software engineers. And I guess to kind of just go through my background. I started off as a software engineer myself. I was at Facebook and I was at Nextdoor for many years. I was one of the super active kind of interviewers. So I've done, you know, many hundreds of software engineering interviews. And when I was at Nextdoor, I was also pretty involved in kind of some of the diversity hiring efforts, trying to get more people from, you know, underrepresented and non-traditional backgrounds into, into tech. And, you know, during that time, I was just seeing the many ways in which people were just not prepared for the interview process. And I spent a good four years actually mentoring in a bunch of different training programs, trying to see how we can bridge the gap before eventually founding Formation to try to solve this problem at scale. Nice. And I'm sure you learned a lot from your time at Nextdoor and Facebook. But if we had to just you know, pick one of those companies and then just choose one lesson, what would that lesson be that you walked away with from there? You know, one of the kind of general themes I kind of carried forward with me from Facebook and Nextdoor was just how to solve problems at scale using engineering and product, which was just a type of thinking that I felt like was very kind of missing when it comes to the world of education, which was very, you know, ironic for me, working with these programs that are trying to teach people to be better software engineers, but the programs themselves are just kind of entirely devoid of technology. One of the things actually I should have mentioned earlier in the quick recap is the thing that Formation does very differently is we don't have a static kind of curriculum per se. Mm -hmm. Um, What we do differently is every lesson Every class, every assignment that every student does is dynamically computed by our technology based on each person's performance in the program. And that type of kind of engineering and product driven type of problem solving is, I think, one of the things that I learned from my background. And what was it like when you decided to leave next door to start your own company? What was going on inside your head? And did your friends and family think you were crazy? What was that journey like for you? You know, to be honest, I had no idea that when I left Nextdoor that this kind of venture capital landscape was something that existed. So I wasn't one of the founders that decided that, you know, I was definitely going to be a founder. And for me, it was something that I really stumbled into, to be honest. So actually, after leaving Nextdoor, it was two years before I started Formation. And during that time, I was essentially running my own coding boot camp. It was just a complete one-person show. I ran all of the recruiting, all of the instruction. I did all of the grading, et cetera. And it was almost two years of doing this and actually pouring my own savings into this 
company to pay the rent, essentially, to run this company. And long story short, I eventually found venture capital through exposure to communities like Y Combinator. And I learned that, you know, people with an idea can just go and raise funding to try to build a company. To answer the question about, like, what did my friends and family think? I think that, you know, my parents probably thought that I was even crazier than, like, most parents of founders thought, because not only was I leaving, like, a job to start a company, I was also spending all of my own money trying to fund it. So it was like I was, like, paying to do a job. (laughs) So, yeah, it was definitely an interesting time. Nice. That's awesome. That's funny. Now, a couple of questions that we like to ask just to better understand what makes you tick as a founder. First question is, what founder do you admire the most and what do you admire about that? I am sure you get this all the time, but it's incredibly challenging to pick just one. I see so many admirable traits in so many different people, but I was thinking about this and one of the people that stood out to me was Melanie Perkins. I don't know if you've heard of her. She founded Canva. Mm -hmm. And I guess, you know, I always just kind of respect a badass woman founder who is just able to kind of, you know, defy the odds to make something happen. I I think it's it's hard enough to be a founder of honestly anything. Respect to, you know, every founder ever. But I guess on top of that, you know, having to overcome all the biases with, you know, being a woman. And if you've ever heard her story, she had literally no network in traditional like Silicon Valley when she came over here on a plane ticket with literally no real established pathway and somehow managed to get funding for her company. And one of the things that I think she does particularly well is just like simplicity and focus. I've heard her speak on a number of occasions. And I think what she's able to do repeatedly is just repeat some of the same messages and drilling home the idea of, you know, making design, which can feel complex and difficult to, you know, making design simple and and delightful. Anyway, I think there's so many founders to look up to, but I'll I'll name just the one, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think most people come on the podcast at a very hard time narrowing it down to one, but Melanie's awesome. I've followed her story a little bit. Wasn't it something like with something to do with kite surfing? And I can't remember who the VC. Oh my god! Was. Yeah. What was that story? Do you remember? I think I honestly can't remember exactly, but I I think that I might misquote it, but I think that she basically used this kite surfing event as an excuse to basically say that she was already going to this event and to meet an investor that she was interested in meeting. Yeah, <laughs> I think so. And they're also, isn't it a husband and wife team there too? They are, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. So interesting. I think that's been growing as a trend too in the pandemic time. I feel like people spend a lot of time just at home and a lot of people have started founding companies. Obviously, they preceded this before it was cool, but... (laughs) (laughs) And speaking of husband and wife teams, I I see your husband is your co-founder and CTO. What's that like for you? You know, I get asked that a lot, and I honestly cannot imagine doing it another way. Honestly, you know, I'm sure this changes a little bit over time, but, you know, when you start a company, it is just absolutely all-consuming. And to me, the idea of pouring all of my time and energy into a company and then at the end of the night still try to make more mental energy to talk about, you know, other 
topics feels exhausting to me. (laughs) You know, where it's like, I just really want to continue thinking about all of my problems. And it's like, if I had to be like, how was your day at work? You know, what are you doing? Like, that just feels difficult. (laughs) But I think it's just been a tremendous advantage for us because we obviously know each other fairly well. And we're just really able to like be all in on the company. I do see ways in which there are disadvantages, though. Like, you know, when there's stressful things that happen at the company, it kind of impacts both people as opposed to, you know, having one person who can be like the stable emotional person. And there's things like that. But, you know, all in all, like, again, I haven't experienced founding a company a different way and honestly have a hard time imagining it. Yeah, and as you called out, I, I do think it's a growing trend. I've had quite a few founders on in the last couple of months who it's the same setup and they're navigating those same complexities. What I always ask them is like, what are the rules? Is there like a rule of like, hey, no, no business talk after 6 p.m.? Do you have any like funny rules that you heard to put in place? Honestly, I don't know. I've heard many people attempting this, and I don't know of a single couple who's successfully implemented it. And to be honest, I don't know if this is sometimes I feel like I'm setting a bad expectations for this, but I personally, at least for the current phase of my life, I don't love having like strict boundaries. You know, I feel like if I'm going to have a creative moment where I have like a great idea and I'm really energized by it, I always just want to like capture that moment and like talk about it then if that's the time that feels right. And to be honest, also fortunately or or unfortunately, that tends to happen actually during off times. You know, when you're not like in a meeting, you're just like sitting around doing nothing and like something comes to you. So for us, we haven't even attempted to do this because I feel like that's just setting ourselves up for failure. But, you know, everyone needs a different balance in life. So, you know, this phase also may not last forever for us. But yeah. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. And what about books? Is there a specific book that's had a major impact on you? So I'm a pretty big reader. This one might even, which one is harder? One book or one founder that you look up to? (laughs) Both are very, very hard. I feel like books are also contextual. I feel like a lot of books build on each other. You know, like reading a book at a certain time in your life will have a different impact depending on what you're dealing with and like previous books that you have like consumed. So it's really hard to like pick one book because each book has like had a different impact on me at different points of my time. But one recent one that I guess comes to mind is this book called Black Box Thinking. And it's really a book that talks about failure and how to think about failure and how to learn. And it starts off as a book. It compares the airline industry with the medical industry, Mm -hmm. which are both industries that are, you know, have very dire consequences when things go wrong, right? So it's an interesting case study of dealing with failure. And it's just very different, the cultures of how to deal with it, where, you know, I don't know if you know, but there's something like 200 to 400,000 deaths every year as a result of medical error, which is absolutely insane, as opposed to it's almost nearly zero for like the number of commercial airline deaths. And anyway, the book is talking about how, you know, the medical industry is very, it's like it covers things up and there's a lot of incentives in place with like, you know, how insurance and various things work versus like the airline industry has 
you know, a black box and every accident is recorded and openly analyzed and there's no culture of blame. And this has created a culture where every time there's been an unfortunate incident, they have created new practices that have you know, prevented countless future deaths. And I think the reason I like this book is I feel like I actually really lived this culture when I was at Facebook and Nextdoor building product. It's all about iterating, right? Like no one assumes when you launch a product, it's going to be successful. But I have actually liked this book in the value that it has served to others when I've recommended it. So I, I often recommend this book to like team members who join and it kind of communicates better than I can the value of failure and, you know, and I think that the ability to really rapidly and repeatedly learn from failure is, I think, the probably the single most important habit of any any founder or, or builder. Nice. Yeah, I read a lot and I have not heard of this book, but I just checked it out on Amazon as you were talking through it. And it sounds awesome and, and looks awesome. So I'll, I'll check it out. And thanks for sharing a book that's not the hard thing about hard things. I think 80% of founders are going to want to that one, so... I'm glad it went a different direction. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Very cool. Let's dive a bit deeper into formation now. So let's just say I'm a software engineer. You know, what's the pitch to get me on board and, and what's the value that's being offered to me? So to summarize it in one number, I'll say it is $100,000. <laughs> so what we do, the first thing is we don't generally work with people who are zero to one. So if you're just starting to learn to code, we're not the right resource for you. So our program works best for someone who, you know, people often have gone through non-traditional backgrounds. So maybe you got started with a boot camp or self-learned or went through a traditional pathway and has had a job already for maybe a couple of years. Our average incoming salary is somewhere in the range of maybe 80 to 100K, which is definitely not anything to look down on, but not the types of salaries you see in, you know, big tech. And we work with you and we work with you unconditionally until you have a signed offer letter in hand. And so in 2022, our average compensation increase was the 100000 that I just mentioned. So I guess that's the pitch. <laughs> wow. And then how long does that program take on average? So on average, it's somewhere in the six to eight month range. But I think that varies so much. I oftentimes like to say that we are selling people better jobs, not, you know, six months of training. And so it really varies quite a bit depending on the person's incoming skill level and kind of their target companies, as well as their availability and how kind of picky even they are on the job hunt, right? Like there's certain people who will only accept very narrow set of jobs versus people who just want to change. And so it's more of an average between like people who take two months all the way up to people who take 12 to 12 plus months as well. And just to make anyone in our audience who's not a software engineer depressed and to make them question their their life choices, what does an average senior software engineer make at like a big Silicon Valley tech company? Well, we often place people at places where they're making 150 to 200K. I would say that's actually kind of mid-level-ish. Senior might be, you know, two to 300K range. And to be honest, coming from a small town in Massachusetts, I like had no idea these types of compensations existed. 
But when you get to staff, principal, and beyond, you could definitely get into, you know, the seven figures in terms of annual compensation. Wow, that's crazy. And good motivation for anyone listening who maybe keeps yeah. you going down that path. The thing is, though, that usually the people who get to that level aren't thinking about the compensation day in and day out. They're just really focusing on becoming a better software engineer and solving interesting problems. And the compensation is like a side effect, a great side effect. But <laughs> just a little note. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. This show is brought to you by Frontlines Media, a podcast production studio that helps B2B founders launch, manage, and grow their own podcast. Now, if you're a founder, you may be thinking, I don't have time to host a podcast. I've got a company to build. Well, that's exactly what we built our service to do. You show up and host, and we handle literally everything else. To set up a call to discuss launching your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. Now, back to today's episode. And on the site, it mentions mentors. So can you talk me through that? You know, who are these mentors? How do you get them on board? And are they just doing this because they love supporting the community or are they being compensated in some way? They are compensated per kind of session that they run. But I will say that their hourly rate is nothing compared to what they make on their day jobs. (laughs) And so the absolute number one kind of driving motivator for mentors to be on the platform is to have a meaningful impact on the careers of our fellows. I mentored for four years, as I mentioned, before starting formation and a big part. So I have a lot of empathy for what makes a mentorship experience really rewarding. And I think one of the things that I have found challenging about a lot of mentorship programs is that it's like a lot of mentorship programs, they're a little bit too... uh, I don't know, loose structured. So there's a lot of mentorship where it's like, hey, you know, share your path or your life experience and like kind of just talk to people, right? And there's like oftentimes like a one-on-one, hey, we'll check in on you once a month. But honestly, that isn't super tangible. (laughs) You know, you need some amount of that in for like kind of networking or for motivation. But for our mentors, I think they're really here to make a tangible impact on someone's skill levels and preparedness as a software engineer, both in the interview process as well as on the job. So the way that mentorship works is you basically fill out a Calendly-like interface. You kind of mark the hours that you're open to take taking sessions. And then there's one kind of manual step where we approve you for certain session types as well as certain topics that you're able to speak to. And then from there, our algorithm will dynamically schedule you for sessions based on your availability and your expertise. And when it comes time, we will schedule you for a session. There will be, you know, three to four people, typically maybe a little bit more. And we'll kind of provide a prompt, like a problem for mentor to work through with their group of three to four students. So they're working through a concrete problem. And this problem is actually assigned because the students that we selected to be in the session may have been struggling with this exact topic, like maybe a few days before. So it's kind of like just-in-time mentorship. Yeah. I don't know if that makes sense. (laughs) Yeah, that makes complete sense. And because you're working with established engineers here, do most of them tend to be in Silicon Valley? Or where are they typically based? Location-wise, they are really all over the place. I mean, that's been one of the trends recently is just people moving or working from anywhere. So definitely not like physically in Silicon Valley, but you might have been referring to it in the metaphorical sense. 
And generally, yes, I would say they are generally senior engineers that are currently working at some of these top companies. We have, you know, people at Microsoft, at Airbnb, at OpenAI, a lot of top companies. Yeah. And what's the business model look like then? Are the engineers paying to be part of this program? And is that the primary model or is it like a recruiting model where you get paid for placing them? What does that look like? Yeah. So we actually experimented early on when we first launched the company, different pricing or payment in business models. So right now we are primarily students pay directly for their training. And we offer a number of different payment models that range from you can pay directly up front, as well as we offer deferred payment options where you start paying once you have been placed into a role. Although more recently, one of the changes has been that we're starting to work more directly with some of the companies that are hiring our students. So most recently, we just launched a partnership with Netflix as part of their diversity hiring initiatives. So they are actually paying for the training for people in their diversity hiring pipelines to help them be better prepared for the interview process. And what's the hiring market like? today? And and how has that changed from, let's say, 12 months ago? It has definitely changed significantly in the last, I would say, even few months. So I'm sure, you know, you've also seen the news, although the news cycle, I think, kind of exaggerates even the situation that it is. But the situation has definitely changed. We're in a market right now where, you know, people just need to be a lot more prepared for the interview process. And there's a lot of people as you know, likely that from a lot of these big tech companies that are kind of unexpectedly on the job hunt and may be rusty and not prepared for the type of market that we're facing today. So, you know, we're seeing our students have much longer job hunts and the kind of recruiting cycles take longer. And historically, when certain students may have expected you know, multiple competing offers from a lot of the top companies. We're seeing students get, you know, far fewer offers. The good news is that the compensation has actually held fairly stable. So once someone gets an offer, it is pretty comparable to what they have gotten in the past, but it takes just more time and more preparation to get to that point now. Mm, Got it. That makes a lot of sense. And in terms of rising above the noise, what do you think you've gotten right? So, okay, I think the biggest thing that we're able to do that no other training program can remotely do because of the way we're set up is offer unlimited technical training until you have a signed offer letter. So most training programs, right, they have a fixed schedule. There's like 12, 16 weeks of training and the classes are scheduled at a fixed time. You go through the training program, and once it's done, it's very hard for a program to dynamically offer support. So usually, even when they say, we support you, you know, unconditionally or until you have a signed offer letter, that oftentimes looks like just a call with like a career coach every so often to have someone to talk to, which is not entirely unhelpful, but, you know, you may need just a lot more support than that. And so for us, every single week, we are dynamically scheduling your classes based on your current performance in the program and your traction on the job hunt. And so you basically continuously talk to mentors, get mock interviews until it is that 
who are successful on, on the job hunt. And so I think in the current market where people are not sure how long things will take and um, just have more uncertainty, I think that's been one of the things that has been really resonating with people. And if we look at your go-to-market so far, are there any specific challenges that you can think of that you've experienced then overcame? Well, to be honest, I think that the biggest challenge is constantly changing. And so you just have to be hyper-observant and adaptive. I think this is going to sound possibly a little silly, but, you know, since the very beginning, we have just had a team of people that have just been crazily attention to detail, wanting to create a great product. And we have a lot of our student support staff, they come from higher education. They care a lot about what they're doing. And we have always delivered a fairly, I would say, outstanding student experience to the point that we have had just incredibly positive reviews everywhere on the internet. So much so that people were giving us feedback that they thought our program must be a scam because there wasn't a single thing they could find that was negative about us. And we jokingly even said, like, maybe we should go out and just plant some slightly negative reviews so that our kind of presence is more legitimate. But anyway, that wasn't the actual problem. The problem was we did have a phase more recently where people did start. And the thing with the internet is that like a few voices can be incredibly loud. So if you have, you know, hundreds of people and most of them are having an incredibly positive time, and even if it's just one or two people have a negative time and decide to post about it on the internet, it can very quickly overtake kind of and become noise, right? And so we had our first experience with negative reviews that kind of blew up on Reddit. And the team was absolutely devastated. I think like people were literally crying on our team, just thinking that we had failed. <laughs> anyway, Reddit is like a crazy place. We have a lot of competitors where I'm not going to name any names, but when we post, we can tell that a bunch of people are just creating like one-time fake accounts and basically responding. And I know Reddit's algorithms attempts to counteract this with a bunch of their algorithms, but it's not perfect. Um, and they'll downvote and upvote each other's comments to kind of like get traction. So we had this thing where like Reddit was just like going really kind of blowing up. And it was very tempting to kind of like just have the same strategy where it's like, okay, well, we create some accounts and we're going to respond back and we're going to upvote our things. And basically, this is maybe not as spicy of a story as maybe, I don't know if you were hoping, but ultimately, we decided not to play into any of that. And we've constantly been very like middle of the road neutral in terms of our stances, you know, applauding our competitors in ways that they are doing things well. And, you know, fairly firmly pointing out areas in which, you know, they are not doing a good enough job. And we do the same thing for ourselves. We know there's a lot of things that we don't do well, and we try to openly kind of admit that as much as possible. And more recently, we had some people on Reddit who actually commented and said, you know, we noticed that you guys do this and have noticed kind of like the longstanding track record of the fair comments that you have posted in light of some like pretty ridiculous kind of attacks or various ways. And so, yeah, maybe I'll just point to that one as a fairly recent 
example. But as I mentioned, you know, challenges come up every single day. It's a roller coaster. <laughs> nice. No, it's a it's an interesting story, and it, and it makes sense. I feel like that's almost human nature, right? With negative reviews, I catch myself doing that with restaurants, where I'll I'll look on Yelp, and it can have like. 200 positive reviews and I see one negative review and it's like, oh, God, well, I can't eat at this place. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, no, that's like the wrong way of thinking. But I, I catch myself doing it a lot. So I can see how that would happen here as well. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and what are these Reddit communities? Is it just like general software development or are they like more niche, like elite engineering? Like what are like the sub communities that you're really active in and part of? Or is it uh, formation Reddit? No, it's generally there's communities of a lot of boot camp kind of students. There's also kind of communities of, I don't know, I'll call it leak coders. There's like a big kind of preparing for the technical interview leak code grinding community, whole culture that we're trying to fight against. That's It's kind of focusing on the wrong points of great software engineering, but there's a lot of communities that are just talking about, you know, Every day, there's like a new and better list of leak code questions that you can go down to make yourself the best software engineer. There's a lot of communities like that. Nice. Well, that's awesome. And last question for you before we wrap, let's zoom out into the future. What's the three-year or five-year vision for the company? Yeah. So I guess taking a step back to kind of think about, you know, what we're doing is we're training software engineers. But if we even think bigger about why we're even doing that, I would say that fundamentally we're here to build a more diverse, a more equitable and more inclusive workforce, right? And I think that the reason we choose to train software engineers is that we think the highest leverage action that we can take to make, you know, a dent on this mission is to really remove the barriers of access in terms of education. And we're not just thinking about, you know, building the highest quality education possible, which of course we're doing, but we're also thinking about building it in a scalable way such that we can offer it to as many people in the world as possible, right? And that's why we're so invested in AI, in adaptive learning, and automating pieces of the education experience so that we can unlock the ability to scale effectively. And so, you know, today we're using this technology to teach about 400 active learners on our platform. But, you know, if we're successful at our longer term vision, we want to open up our platform more and more. And the kind of long term vision is to have an entirely open platform free to use to start to absolutely, you know, anyone who needs training to be able to get started on the platform right away. And so instead of, you know, 400, 400 students, we would be looking at getting, you know, all, you know, 12 million of the software engineers in the world on the platform and eventually could reach beyond software engineers as well. Amazing. I love it. Well, unfortunately, that's all we're going to have time to cover for today. Before we wrap, if people want to follow along with your journey as you continue to build, where should they go? Yeah, well, you can follow us. We're very active on LinkedIn. We're on Formation Dev. And yeah, I guess, I guess there. Um, we're also on Twitter, on Instagram and, and Facebook, all the normal channels. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to share your story and talk about what you're building. This has been a super fun conversation. I, I really enjoyed it. And I'll be wishing you the best of luck in executing on this vision. Awesome. Thanks for having me, Brett. Yeah, no problem. Keep in touch. Yeah.
This episode of Category Visionaries is brought to you by Frontlines Media, Silicon Valley's leading podcast production studio. If you're a B2B founder looking for help launching and growing your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. And for the latest episode, search for Category Visionaries on your podcast platform of choice. Thanks for listening and we'll catch you on the next episode. 